0: We're still dealing here with the first eschatological depiction to which we've assigned the title, The Coming King. This oracle runs from 9.1 through 11.3. The main idea in this part of the oracle has to do with the intention of the Lord to save his people and regather them again into a cohesive community. And we learn here he will do that in part by giving them better leaders. It was bad leadership by and large that led to the exile in the first place the perspective of the bible which modern day readers have a hard time receiving is that it is hard for people to rise above the level of their leaders if the leaders go if the leaders abandon god and slide into idolatry it is almost inconceivable that the people will not follow so if god is going to rescue the covenant community he's going to have to provide a whole new leadership core but with that in place the future is bright And the prospects for expansion, health, and prosperity are unlimited. That's what's on the table in this chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds. And he will give them showers of rain to everyone, the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies they tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore, the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. So the issue here is that the people, led no doubt by their faithless leaders, have been looking to their useless idols for everyday blessings, such as good weather, rain, and abundant harvest. Now, why would they do that? Right? I mean, you might as well pray to a cow on the side of the road. There's there's nothing there for you. For crying out loud, you should be praying to the Lord. That's what this oracle is saying. False religion leads to silliness, confusion, and disappointment. This is the situation that cries out for better leadership. The people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. That's the state of the covenant community in the post-exilic time period. They're structurally restored. The exile is over. They're allowed to go back. Many have gone back. They're in the land. The temple is rebuilt. Things have more or less been restarted, but there is no real leadership. There is no true shepherd. And so the people are lost. That is the desperate state of the people at the turn of the Testaments, which is why the Apostle Matthew says in Matthew 9, verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, remember, I mentioned that Zechariah chapter 9 to 14 is the most frequently cited portion of the prophets in the Passion narratives. So the evangelists have been taught to understand the life and death of Jesus largely through the lens of this section of the Old Testament. And here we're being told that bad leadership had led to silliness, confusion, and disappointment for the people of God. And so Matthew positions Jesus as the answer to that dilemma. And we'll see more of that in the coming verses. All right, verses 3 to 12 of chapter 10 appear to constitute a poem in two parts. The first part in verses 3 to 9 focuses on the restoration of the two kingdoms. And then the second part in verses 10 to 12 focuses on the rebuking and humbling of of those nations that have oppressed the covenant community. Salvation and judgment are often two sides of the same coin. And so it is here, verse three. My anger is hot against the shepherds and I will punish the leaders. For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic steed in battle. From him shall come the cornerstone, from him the tent peg, from him the battle bow, from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the rider on horses. All right, so as mentioned, God is promising here to save and strengthen the covenant community, largely by a wholesale replacement of their leadership. His anger is hot against the shepherds. Kenneth Barker here reminds us, although shepherd can refer to any leader, it is primarily a royal motif. Whether referring to human kings, to the divine king, or to the messianic Davidic king, it was a familiar metaphor in the near eastern world. Closed quote. So a shepherd was a well-known metaphor in that culture for a leader. It could be used to apply to kings, priests, government, functionaries, Whatever. So God is saying here that he is done with the leaders of Israel and he is going to replace them root and branch for the Lord cares for his people and he wants them to be strong like a majestic steed in battle. Now look at the end of verse 3. There the flock of God is called the house of Judah. So we have to think about how that term is being used and later we'll read about the house of Joseph and also of Ephraim. You'll find commentators who understand these terms in literal historic ways, meaning they see this or they understand this as the actual tribe of Judah, and then later the actual house of Joseph. Others are going to understand them in a representative sense, in terms of the remnant of both the northern and southern kingdoms. The tribes did kind of blend together during the turmoil of the sixth to eighth centuries BC. When Assyria was devastating the northern kingdom, many refugees streamed south, and were essentially absorbed within the house of Judah. And then even before that, as the north began to slide into idolatry, many faithful people were streaming south and being absorbed into Judah. And then, of course, after the exile, the tribal structure and the land divisions were essentially irrelevant. Any Israelite who could get back to the land was living, for all intents and purposes, in Judah, regardless of their tribal ancestry. So Anna the prophetess, for example, whom we meet in Luke 2, she was living in the land of Judah, but... The Bible tells us that she was of the tribe of Asher. Obviously, her family had returned at some point and had become part of that melting pot process. So anyway, some would say that these names are used symbolically to refer to the remnant of the whole house of Israel. I think that is probably correct. But as we'll discuss in a moment, I think there may be more to it than just that. Regardless, for now, let's agree that God is saying that from the remnant, from the house of Judah, will come a whole new foundation of leadership for the covenant community. The cornerstone, the tent peg, and the battle bow. All of them together. What are we talking about here? Now, I don't think there could be any doubt in the mind of the Bible reader that we're talking first and foremost about Jesus. In Matthew 21, Jesus tells the parable of the vineyard, which was all about how God had entrusted his vineyard to a certain group of leaders who had failed to give him the fruit that he was due. He sent messengers to them, we understand that as prophets, whom they treated shamefully. And then he sent his son, whom they promptly killed. What do you think the master will do to these terrible leaders? Jesus asks the crowd. They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. That's Matthew 21, 41. So again, this is that. This is Jesus turning Zechariah 10 into a parable with himself as the punchline. The very next verse in Matthew 21 has Jesus saying, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's Matthew 21:42. So there's no doubt that Jesus understood himself as the cornerstone, as the main leader. Prophesied in Zechariah 10 as coming to save and reconstitute the covenant community. No doubt whatsoever. The apostles certainly had no doubt. Peter said in 1 Peter 2:6, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2:19 to 20 said that the church is being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, close quote. So Jesus is the cornerstone. Few things are clearer than that. He is the chief leader that Zechariah 10 is saying is going to come and save and strengthen the covenant community. So the question remains, who are the other leaders? Who's the tent peg? Who's the battle bow? How should we understand the reference to every other leader? Well, again, I think Ephesians 2.20 points us in the right direction. Paul refers to the church as being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. There is some disagreement there as to how to understand the reference to apostles and prophets. Does that mean the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles? Or does that mean the New Testament apostles and prophets? Does that mean the New Testament apostles who were prophets? There's, again, some nuance there. Now, I'm inclined to favor the former option to understand this as referring to the prophets in the Old Testament who pointed forward to Jesus, the apostles in the New Testament who point back. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter for our purposes here. The bottom line is that the false layer of leaders have been scrubbed out. God has rejected the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the priesthood. They're gone. And the covenant community will henceforth be built up on Christ and his authorized, and associated leaders. From him will come every leader. The leaders now must be filled with the spirit of Christ. They must build up on the apostolic foundation. and This will be an absolute game changer. The prophecy says that they'll be like foot soldiers who are strong enough to defeat Calvary. That's in, in verse five, Zechariah 10, verse five. If we were to use a contemporary metaphor, we might say that the new covenant community will be like infantry soldiers that can single-handedly defeat tanks and fighter jets. Joyce Baldwin says here, the simile, the comparison, is intended to describe triumphant conquest in the face of overwhelming odds. Footmen against cavalry. The fact that they have fought at all and not fled in retreat admits of only one explanation. The Lord is with them. Closed quote. She goes on to say, those who in their submission to the Lord are like sheep become invincible as war horses, in his service, close quote. So that's what's being promised here. All right, verse six says, I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them and they shall be as though I had not rejected them for I am the Lord their God and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as they were before. I mentioned a moment ago that we have to figure out how we're using these terms, house of Judah, house of Joseph and Ephraim. Is God foretelling a literal regathering of all the tribes with Joseph and Ephraim standing for the north and Judah for the south? How How would that be? As I said, by this point, there had been a great melting pot process whereby refugees from the scattered northern tribes had joined and been absorbed into the southern tribe of Judah. Eventually, all the people of Israel would be known simply as Jews or Judahites. So how literalistic should we be taking this here? Thomas McComiskey is helpful. He says that the historic kingdoms of Israel and Judah are not in view here is clear From the perspective of this text, which is the restoration of the people of God resulting from the benign rule of the messianic king. These kingdoms play a role in a dramatic motif in this book in which there rises above these historical entities a spiritual kingdom, sharing characteristics with them, but different from them, in that it witnesses the fulfillment of God's promises to his people. The houses of Judah and Joseph find a significant counterpart in the kingdom of Christ which realizes the ideals of the ancient prophets." Closed quote. So there is a remnant which is made up of refugees from the former tribes but out of that remnant arises a new foundation that will serve as the platform for a much greater and broader work that will be figuratively known as the Israel of God. Paul uses that phrase in Galatians 6:16. 6, Jesus seems to understand things in this way. Listen to how he steps into the imagery of this passage. Read verse eight again. So Zechariah 10, verse eight, I will whistle for them and gather them in for I have redeemed them and they shall be as many as they were before. All right, so a shepherd whistles for his sheep and gathers a great flock as big or bigger even than the flock that was before. Well, what does that sound like? It sounds for all the world like John 10. In John 10, Jesus says, But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. All right, so Jesus is the good shepherd. He enters by the gate. He calls for his sheep and begins to gather his flock. Look at verse 16. So this is John 10, 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Close quote. So Jesus says it's going to be a big flock and a much broader flock than it was before. This big flock is going to include people from many different stocks and folds. Jesus is stepping right into the imagery of Zechariah 10. He's saying, here I am. I am here to regather the sheep and not just from the old stockyards of Israel. I'm I'm doing that, but also I am adding in sheep from many different folds. Well, of course, this is the church with a Jewish cornerstone and a Jewish foundation, but with many layers and multi-ethnic bricks and stones added onto that. McComiskey again is helpful here. He says, When we read promises of great repopulation, we must not fail to see the church. For the promise to Abraham of great posterity includes redeemed Gentiles. Closed quote. So the covenant community is going to be regathered and reconstituted. It's going to be a mix of Jew and Gentile, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. That's a very interesting phrase. That no doubt reminds the Bible reader of something the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5.18. He says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So there, Paul compares the influence of the Holy Spirit to the influence of wine. Wine gladdens the heart, according to Psalm 104.15. But here it is the Spirit that gladdens the heart. The point is that the reconstituted covenant community is going to be filled with the joy and power of the Holy Spirit. That is why she can fight and win against superior odds. That is why her foot soldiers can march uphill against tanks because they are filled, every one of them, with the Holy Spirit of God. Verse 9. Though I scatter them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea and all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low and the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in his name, declares the Lord. Now, all the commentators agree here that the references to Egypt and Assyria are intended in a symbolic sense. Even the dispensational writers that I consulted who tend to take a more literalistic approach seem to adopt this more symbolic understanding here. Kenneth Barker, for example, says, the names Egypt, Assyria, Assyria, Egypt, form a chiasm. These two ancient oppressors of God's chosen people are probably intended to represent all countries in which the Israelites have been dispersed. They evoke memories of slavery and exile, Close quote. So as we said at the beginning, salvation and judgment go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. As God summons his true children out of the nations, so he also judges those nations, particularly those who have oppressed and harassed the covenant community. Now that's an interesting view of history. In essence, the Bible seems to be saying that God shakes the table, so to speak, to do two things simultaneously, to summon his people, and to cast down the proud and rebellious. All of history seems to serve those two ends. The greater the upheaval, the greater and more rapid the separation. Now, in verse 10, he says that he will bring them out of Egypt and Assyria. Again, I think it best to understand those terms symbolically, as in, I will bring them out of the hostile nations. And then he says he will add them or settle them in Gilead and Lebanon, which is Interesting, because those two regions are not properly part of the land of Israel. They are adjacent territories. So many commentators think this is a symbolic way of saying that the influx will be massive, much bigger than could be contained in the actual land. I think that's true. I I wonder if there isn't more there, but I agree with that being the most likely and obvious sense of the phraseology. Verse 11 makes use of a bunch of Exodus imagery, passing through the waters, the Nile, etc., as well as some additional judgment imagery. So, in a sense, this global picture of salvation is being painted as a sort of new Exodus. Salvation is always from a tyrannical power to a life giving, promise keeping, community building power. It's a release from slavery unto life-giving service to the Lord. That is how it is supposed to be and that is how it will be. Look at verse 12. God says, I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in his name. Now, notice that he does not promise to make them strong in themselves. Remember, the humble king took from them all the traditional weapons of war in chapter nine, verse 10. He took from them the chariot, the war horse, the bow. He won't allow them to be strong in that sense, but he will strengthen them. He will strengthen them in the Lord. This reminds us of what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul can do all things, not because he has a chariot, a sword, or a warhorse. He had none of those things, of course, and he didn't want any of those things. He, He says in 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. So The kingdom will advance. We will be strong. We will be able to do all things. We will be able to prevail over our enemies, but not because we have access to traditional weapons and armaments. The church doesn't need tanks or planes or guns or grenades. What we need are men and women, boys and girls filled with the spirit and wielding the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Now, there's a bit of debate among Bible scholars here as to whether verses one to three of chapter 11 are better understood as the closing summary of all the material we've just been reading in chapters nine and 10, or as the introduction to the material found in chapter 11. And I think there's something to the arguments made on both sides. Uh, So you can decide. I actually wonder if it's just not intended as a natural transition. It's a hinge, really. Those three verses read as follows. Open your doors, O Lebanon, that the fire may devour your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen, for the glorious trees are ruined. Wail, oaks of Bashan, for the thick forest has been felled. The sound of the wail of the shepherds, for their glory is ruined. The sound of the roar of the lions, for the thicket of the Jordan is ruined. Now, if you're a Bible reader, you know that trees are often used as symbols for leaders. We think of the big tree in Nebuchadnezzar's dream that represented him. Or we think of Jotham's fable about all the different trees who represented various leaders who were eventually ruled over by the lowly bramble, which represented Abimelech. Anyway, trees often serve as symbols for leaders. So here the message seems to be, that judgment is coming on the leaders, which we've just been talking about. In that case, the first two verses of chapter 11 are saying basically the same thing as verse 3 of chapter 10. God is going to punish and remove the arrogant and corrupt leaders within the house of Israel. So, watch out, cedar. Watch out, cypress. Watch out, oak. The axe is laid at the root of the tree. The metaphor probably also includes a reference to the destruction of the temple, which was often described under the figure of cedar because of its luxurious appointments. The temple was generally supplied with cedar from Lebanon. So again, some see this section as a poetic introduction to the material that we're about to explore in the next chapter. I'm going to go back, Matt, just pause here for a second. I feel like that was a bit redundant. I didn't catch that in writing. So I'm actually going to go all the way back to where it says, then in verse 3, so that I can say that less redundantly. I'll make a note of that on the script. So as you're patching this together, go uh, stitch this right after when I say, watch out, cedar, watch out, cypress, watch out, oak. The ack is laid at the root of the tree. And then go directly into here. Then in verse 3, the metaphor switches back to the pastoral. We're talking about shepherds, not trees in verse 3. You can see that for yourself. So again, it functions well as a hinge, doesn't it? This little poem functions as a nice summary of what we've been talking about in 9 and 10, but then also as a decent introduction to what we're going to be talking about in chapter 11, where we get into the story of the shepherd. The idea seems to be that the land itself is bewailing the destruction it must endure. The metaphor probably also includes a reference to the destruction of the temple, which was often described under the figure of cedar because of its luxurious appointments. The temple was supplied, of course, with cedar from Lebanon. So it's a natural transition as well in terms of the imagery. Either way, the substance of the message is clear. The Lord has a day against every proud and lofty thing, every high tree, every rebellious shepherd. He has a day of reckoning planned the wicked leaders of Israel. And he has a new leader in mind, ready to take his throne in the midst of his covenant community. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting one of our preferred mission partners. For the remainder of this year, we are highlighting the church planting ministry Mile One in St. John's, Newfoundland. Newfoundland is classified as an unreached population with less than 2% of people identifying as evangelicals. Mile One Ministries is committed to helping healthy churches plant other Bible-believing, gospel-preaching churches. Here at Into the Word, I only promote ministries that I have firsthand, on-the-ground experience with. Mile One is bearing fruit and is being led and stewarded by people that I know and trust. If you'd like to make a contribution to this important ministry, you can do that by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. There are giving options there under the Give tab for both Canadian and American listeners. International listeners are welcome to give as well, though their gifts may not qualify for charitable receipts in their nation.